Welcome back to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson from Protea Machining, and this week I am joined by Devin Bedoni of Lycan Precision. So welcome, Devin. Thanks. So uh, let's get right into it. Uh, how did you get into manufacturing? How did you get to where you are now? And uh, let's go all the way up to what you do now and what your company does. Yeah. Um, so do you want the long story or the longer story? <laughs> <laughs> hey, we, I got all the time in the world, so whatever yeah. you want to share. Yeah, well, it's kind of like a lot of the people um, that you've had on the show and I've listened to. Um, it's, it kind of goes back to when I was a little kid. Um, I've always been super into machines and mechanics. And um, my my stepdad likes to like playfully tease me that like as a four-year-old, I had a serious obsession with hydraulics specifically like if, if, lots of kids are into tractors but i was like hydraulics are my thing um and would make my stepmom like pull the lawnmower out from underneath the house just so i could just like poke at it and look at it as a four-year-old um so i've been super into all, all kinds of mechanical stuff since i was a little kid um and then um all of my, so my, my parents split when I was like one and both remarried pretty soon after. Um, and all four of my parents ran their own businesses and worked with their hands in one way or another. So my, uh, my mom ran restaurants. She's a chef. Uh, my stepdad is a goldsmith. My birth dad is, uh, like a fine woodworker and instrument maker. Um, and my stepmom is a, uh landscape architect and they did my dad and stepmom did a ton of gardening and they had all kinds of side hustles going as well so i kind of grew up amidst people who worked with their hands and made stuff and um that was that was just a part of my life um and then also when i was four i learned how to ride a bike and that has been sort of my my main interest and obsession since I was a little kid. Um, and bikes obviously are machines in a, in a certain sense, they're covered with machined parts, they're welded together, all that kind of stuff. Um, so the interest in mechanical things was, was there from a, a really young age. Um, so scooting forward a little bit in, uh, grade school um my dad moved to a place that had a place where he could put together kind of a proper wood shop um and i kind of had free reign in the wood shop you know nine to 12 years old is when i spent a lot of time in there but i wasn't allowed to use the table saw or joiner but bandsaw drill press sander lathe all that kind of stuff um i could kind of just go crazy in there uh, making model boats and swords and clubs and, and whatever. Um, and then also around that time, um, my stepdad had me start doing a quote unquote apprenticeship in the goldsmith shop, which basically meant like sweeping floors and cleaning glass. And then I would start to, um, work on the skills and usually it meant like making family presents uh for our extended family for birthdays and christmas and stuff like that um 
and really what he would do is he'd lend me money to buy bike parts. Uh, and then I would have to show up every week to pay him back. (laughs) (laughs) He kept me in there. Yeah. Yeah. It was good. You know, like, uh, really instilled a strong worth work ethic, made me aware of, uh, what it means to borrow money. Um, I was consequently very debt averse for, for a lot of my, uh, like early adulthood. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that was kind of early days and then junior high, um, I kind of stopped making a lot of stuff when I discovered girls, of course, <laughs> and started taking school a little more seriously, um, and into high school. And I just kind of like took it for granted that I was good at making stuff, but didn't really ever think of it as being a um, something I would do for work. Um, I was still riding bikes. Um, And then let's see, jumping forward a little bit more senior year of high school. uh, So I'm kind of a dyed in the wool hippie. And I was like, took a very personal took it very personally that global warming was a thing um, and felt bad that I was driving to a school every day. I went to a private school. I didn't ride the bus. Um, And so I decided I was going to ride my bike to school every day there and back. Um, And it wasn't like around the block. It was eight miles each way, which isn't crazy, but, you know, took a little bit. And I was doing it on a, uh, for the bike dorks out there, I was on a, a Santa Cruz bullet, which I don't know. Have you ever? Do you ever ride bikes at all? Bicycles? I know you're into motorcycles. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've had mountain bikes on and off for years. I'm in a current off situation, but uh... <laughs> yeah. So I was on this six inch travel mountain bike. It's effectively a downhill bike, and I was using it as a road bike. Um, it was not very efficient. Uh, yeah, that sounds rough. Yeah, but I was getting stronger. But pretty soon, I was like, I need a road bike, um, and borrowed some money from my parents, uh, which I would have to work back for and bought a road bike and fell super in love with road biking. Um, and, and racing specifically, which is like renowned for taking over people's lives completely. Um, it's like you start doing it and then pretty soon, like everything you eat is oriented towards riding and like your sleep and your daily schedule. And pretty soon you have no friends and all you do is train and, and go to races. And the only people you associate with are other bike racers. And, um, so I graduated yeah, high school. one of my best friends right now, or not now, but he <laughs> formerly, well, no, no, we're, we're still best friends, but he, <laughs> he formerly was a, uh, a road bike racer and now races downhill mountain bikes. But like, he's always been, like that is his thing. And it seems like, yeah, once you get bit by it, you are, you are hooked forever. So I, yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, so coming out of high school, um, I was like, I'm not going to college. I'm going to become a professional road cyclist. Um, which was probably not the smartest thing, but, um, it was good in terms of that. Like, again, like I learned how to work super hard, uh, and learned how to be very, um just dedicated and uh i'm blanking on the word but just like able to structure my life stick to a plan all that kind of stuff um and like about three years in four years into that i realized that it well 
I'm too big, basically. Like cycling is all about power to weight ratio when it comes down to it. And I'm six foot three and like around 200 pounds when I'm light. Um, so I'm not the ideal road racer build. Uh, and I went to a couple <laughs> races with some, with some pro talent there and was like, oh, this is what this means. I'm just never going to be very good at it. Um, so I had a bit of a coming to terms with that. And, um, oh, so I forgot to mention uh, when I graduated high school, I was kind of trying to figure out what to do for work. And I ended up going to work full time for my dad, goldsmithing from with my stepdad. Um, so throughout this whole thing, I'm I'm doing goldsmithing. I am like developing that that skill set of metalwork, which is very different from machining, but has some similarities. Um, so I quit cycling, uh, and I'd also been doing off and on carpentry work with my birth dad. Uh, quit cycling, kind of like aimless, figuring out, trying to figure out what to do, uh, making goldsmith, making jewelry, but not super excited about it. Um, and, uh, through my teens, I'd been going to these camps that were, uh, like, uh, wilderness skills camps, like primitive skills and wilderness awareness stuff. I'd go there in the summer for a week. Um, and they kind of had a, a history of having people come back and help out when they got a little older. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to that, kind of get grounded, figure out what I want to do again. Uh, just take a break. Um, and I bought a motorcycle and went on a big road trip. So I'm, I'm near Seattle. So went down the coast to California, visited some family, drove across, uh, you know, California and Nevada into New Mexico where these camps were. Um, went to this camp for a week, kind of hung out in New Mexico for a while. It was like a month long road trip on my motorcycle. Uh, and on the way home, and sorry, I know this, this is getting to be a long story. <laughs> no, 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 please. Yeah, on the way home, um, I was thinking, and my family had this little piece of property, or my so my mom and stepdad had a little piece of property, kind of just around the corner from where they live. And uh, I was like, you know what? I'd always talked about building a treehouse or or something crazy there. I was like, I'm going to build a cabin. Um, and start working with my hands again and, um, build our, build, I was with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. Uh, it's like, I'm going to build something, a place where we can live, stop renting. Um, I didn't have any money really. Uh, so I got home, kind of started putting together some basic plans. Like I'd done a lot of woodwork, but I'd never like framed a house. Um, and it pretty quickly became clear that like, I didn't have enough money to pay for permits or an aseptic system and electrical hookup. Uh, and I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to go off the grid. Uh, just being naive, basically. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> so when I ordered the lumber package and I didn't have any power on the property because you have to have a permit to get or even a temporary power set up. Um, so I just started working with hand tools and built this little cabin over the next like kind of three or four months, basically um, just with basically a saw and a hammer and, you know, some basic stuff more or less by myself. I'd get some friends to come over to help lift walls and whatnot. Um, and that got me really into making things again. 
And I'd always been kind of interested in like off, off grid, sustainable living, uh, self-sufficiency kind of stuff. Um, so that kind of like steered me back towards making stuff. Um, and about a year, and then I thought I was going to become like a timber framer or something. I was like messing around with woodworking and, um, about a year or two into that. So we're living in this cabin. My wife's finished college at that point. Um, she's working at a farm and we don't have any power. Our running water is like rain catchment. And we're basically living kind of a, kind of a weird off grid lifestyle. Like we both have normal jobs, but we live in this cabin without any running water or, or electricity. Um, and we toured this farm that uh the guy was making his like super off-grid home and he had he was building a wood stove from scratch that had like a, a hot water heater built it like a hot water jacket built in to heat water and it had a uh this basically like he funneled all of the exhaust through this like manifold and he had this row of solid state um I forget what they're called exactly, but they're like a chip. Basically, you put a heat sink on one side and a heat source on the other. And the heat differential across them creates a current. And so he had this row of them on the back and he was going to generate electricity from his wood stove. Because in the winter here, you solar power doesn't work. There's just, it's cloudy all the time, basically. I was like, that is genius. Um so I set out to do something similar and I talked to him a few months later, I gave him a call and he said, ah, it doesn't really work very well because keeping the cold heat sink cold enough is challenging. And they have to be, I think there was some issue with like wiring and parallel versus series and differential heat across them. And he's like, it's, it's kind of doing the trick, but not so much. So I kind of, yeah, must be a, a Peltier device, right? Yeah, that sounds right. There's like one company that, has manufactured them uh it, it's like a decade ago now so i'm definitely blanking on on who they are uh but yeah i only know of them because they use them in uh pcs they they do the reverse oh. where they supply a ton of power to them and one side gets really hot and one side gets really cool and they use them to like i think they use them in liquid cooled pcs a lot to actually cool as, like a, as a heat pump kind of yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah, that, that's the same thing. Um, so I went back to the drawing board and I was like, maybe I'll mess around with steam engines or something. And this guy, a family friend, was was staying at our house and I was on YouTube looking up steam engine stuff. Um, and he was like, have you heard of a Sterling engine? And I was like, no, what is that? And he's like, well, check it out. I He had grown up in this commune in India and there was a guy there who was super into these things and like generated power for the commune with the Sterling engines, these big ones. So I looked it up and instantly got super obsessed. Um, have you heard what, uh, are you familiar with what a Sterling engine is? I think I've seen them because a few people on Instagram have made them. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of esoteric. They, um, they were developed, I think, in the mid-1800s as an alternative to steam engines because, like, steel quality was really low and steam engines were exploding often and killing lots of people. Um, 
in the UK, I guess. And so this guy came up with this alternative. Um, and it's so it's a what they call an external combustion engine. Um, basically, you have a hot side and a cold side. It's it's effectively a heat pump as well. Um, so you just heat the outside with a flame and in shuttling air back and forth inside of it, you get a differential pressure basically as the air heats and cools. Um, so I looked at this thing and I was like, that would be perfect. You put the hot side in the stove, you put that cold side outside, you know, off to the races in theory. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I tried to make one in the goldsmith shop and it's like interesting the difference between like intricate work and precise work because uh, we did very intricate work uh, or, or accurate work. I should we the difference between intricate and accurate. We did very intricate work and very precise work, but it was not accurate. Um, and I, so I like went to the hardware store and got some brass tubing and brass rod and and bar stock and like tried to cobble this thing together and i'm like silver soldering all the pieces together um and it did not work <laughs> at all. oh jeez. uh which is kind of to be expected um and so i was like okay i need a lathe um and was looking at like chinese you know crap benchtop lathes on uh on the internet and then I remember that our, a family friend had given my birth dad a little benchtop lathe like many, many years before. Um, and he'd never got it set up. So I gave him a call because he had moved down to Southern Oregon at this point. Uh, and I was like, hey, are you using that? Could I could I use it? Um, he was like, yeah, you're welcome to use it, but it's missing some parts. And I don't really know what they are. So a couple months later, I went down and got it and brought it back. And we had a family, a kind of family acquaintance that is a machinist um, who had repaired a lot of my dad's woodworking tools over the years. Um, he referred to him as the metal wizard. Uh, <laughs> and he, so he was and I'd been to his shop a couple times as a kid. Um, oh, so like one back up real quick, like I'm getting into mountain biking really heavy in my teens, this is like the mid to late 1990s, uh, full suspension, disc brakes, all the stuff that's ubiquitous now is like just starting to become a thing. Um, and I really wanted disc brakes on my bike and could not afford them. And they were especially expensive back then. And my dad was a major proponent of the like build everything yourself idea, which is a hard lesson to learn to grow out of but um he was like just make them yourself i was like uh cool i don't have the tools he's like you need a lathe and even as like a 12 or 15 year old i was like i don't think that's right <laughs> like looking at <laughs> I, like, I, I kind i know how a lathe works like in theory like i've done a lot of wood turning at this point i was like i don't think you need a lathe uh but anyway we'd been to this guy's shop and my dad had been like, see, there's a metal lathe. And I'm looking at the thing, I'm like, well, I get how that works, but I don't see how you make disc brakes with that. Um, I think you need some other thing. Uh, so I'd met the guy when I was a kid. So I just stopped by his house and had the, had this, so the, the lathe that I got from my dad was a Atlas Craftsman six inch bench top, like classic little lathe. 
I got it in the back of this little funky Subaru and stopped by his house. Uh, and he comes out and he's like, oh, yeah, it's missing the compound rest and the tool post. And he's like, I think if, you know, if you buy a compound rest, I'll, I'll help you figure out the tool post part. And I think he kind of expected that I'd never come back. Um, but I found one on, I think it was on eBay ordered it, it showed up like a week later and I came back to his house. <laughs> I was like, here, how, how do I put this on? <laughs> um, and I think he was kind of excited that I had actual interest. Um, and so I don't think it was that day. Like he had me come back and we made a little lantern style tool post. Are you familiar with like old, old school lathe tool holding? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 So we made one from scratch and on, he had a well he had like a fleet of lathes um but his kind of workhorse was an old south bend 13 um and i think he wasn't it was belt drive he wasn't worried about me destroying it so we we made it on that and as soon as we started working i was like oh this is what i've been wanting to do since i was like four years old i just didn't quite know it um and I think even like I went home that that day and talked to my girlfriend, now my wife, and I was like, I think I've figured out what I want to do with my life. Um, it was just an aha moment. Um, and so pretty instantly, I was like, I think like a day or two later, I called him and I was like, can I come work for you <laughs> or just apprentice? Like, you don't have to pay me. Like, I'll just come and do stuff. And he was like, whoa, whoa pump the brakes. Um he was kind of in the midst of retiring, didn't um, didn't really need the labor, and his shop was really small. Um, and so he was like, I don't think so. I, I kind of want my space. And I was like, crap, <laughs> I guess I got to figure something else out here. <laughs> so uh, I had a woodworker friend, uh, older guy, like probably 20 years older than me. Um, and he had like a Bridgeport style knee mill that he bought new to make fixtures for woodworking, uh, but he wasn't really using it. Um, so I took my little South Bend, or not my South Bend, my little Craftsman six inch over there to his shop and set it up. Uh, and he said I could use his mill. Um, and so I built a Sterling engine. It was like, basically besides that little lantern tool post, it was my first real project. Uh, and it worked, it was pretty crude, but it worked. Um, and I brought it back to Dave, the, the guy who had the shop and helped me show or helped show me how to make the, the tool post. And he got super excited. Uh, and like a couple days later, he calls me and he's like, you should come check this out. And he built one that was of course, super nice. Um, <laughs> and that's messed little, up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, he was like probably 60 at this point. He had like, you know, a massive inventory of materials and fasteners and O-rings and everything you could possibly want uh, and skills, obviously, which I did not have at that time. Uh, so we kind of, we became friends through that, through making Sterling engines and we were kind of iterating and, um, and I, so I had this idea, which was, I think ill-formed at this point looking back, but I was like, I am going to, you know, you always approach things. You're like, I need this thing. Maybe lots of other people need this thing, which sometimes is the case and sometimes really is not. <laughs> um, so I was like, I'm going to make Sterling engines 
like Owenwood stoves for people who live off grid in the northern hemisphere. So like already knowing that's a pretty long description, like probably you're not on the right track. But anyway, I was fully convinced that this is what I was going to do for work. Uh, and I convinced my grandpa to give me a loan to buy a couple basic tools. Um, and so I started searching Craigslist. Uh, I convinced that woodworker friend to sell me his, his Bridgeport email. Um, I found a South Bend 13 inch, like, uh, the, if you ever see pictures of like, um, shop classes in the fifties, like there's just rows and rows of like that lathe, um, got one of those and a TIG welder, like a old TIG welder and found a little spot I could rent from a friend down the road. Um, and basically just started learning how to machine and build Sterling engines. Um, and they're pretty good at like teaching you how to be a decent machinist fast because they're, they're really finicky. They don't like tolerate any friction in the system or they just don't work. Um, and so that was kind of the next couple of years. Um, and was taking little side jobs here and there, but I'm still making jewelry, still doing other work. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the beginning. Um, and it's from there, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot in between. That was 2009, I guess that I was doing that. And there's been a lot of circuitous here's and there's between now and then, but that's when I like properly, properly put my foot in the door with machine tools and, and started learning about this stuff. Okay. So how did you get from Sterling engines to where you are now? Bike parts. And I mean, it seems like, well, I, I guess before we go down that route, yeah. <laughs> what do you do now? What is your, your company's name? Um, you know, what, yeah. what do you guys specialize in machinery, all that stuff. And then we can, we can fill in the blank between there and here. Yeah. Uh, companies like in precision, um, it actually used to be called Sterling machine works, but I changed the name about, I think two years ago. Um, long story there, but to tie in with the bicycle frame building that I was doing, which was Lycan bikes, trying to kind of bring it all under one brand. Um, at the moment, <clears throat> doing primarily CNC milling, some CNC turning, um, sort of whatever comes through the door, and then with a focus on cycling-related stuff, so servicing the custom frame builder community with frame parts, and right now a couple frame tools, but wanting to expand into producing more frame tools as well. Cool. And then what kind of machinery do you have? Uh, so we've got a Speedio S700 uh, with the 16K spindle and a rotary for, uh, fourth axis trunnion on it. Uh, and then uh, just recently added the S700 high torque. That's just a three axis model. Um, got a 1988 <laughs> Hitachi Seiki high tech uh, 20S2 big bore version um and then got an old like victor i think it's a 16 inch manual lathe 16 inch swing manual lathe i still have the uh supermax knee mill here um and then i i have got you know some random little support equipment 
welder, saw, belt sander, stuff like that. Uh, but most of the work is going across those BDOs and the and the Hitachi. Nice. And you had a Herco and got rid of that, right? Yeah, there's been a whole line of things. So I guess maybe going back into how I got from 2009 and a couple of manual machines building Sterling engines to now. Um, I was so this this friend Dave, the guy who helped me with get kind of get off the ground. He was very much of the old school. Uh, you know, he, he's the type of guy who could machine and fix tractor parts, you know, in the field and also could build you a radio from scratch. Um, he's kind of of that era where like you just knew how to do everything. Um, and he had sort of made his living as kind of as that type of person, right? Where like someone has a, has a problem, they come to you and they're like, help me figure out a solution to this problem. Sometimes that's like, can you fix my roller skates? That's a, is a famous example. He was always telling me about like <laughs> someone came and was like, can you fix my roller skates? He's like, well, sure can to his later career where I think he spent the last couple, maybe four or five years of his career working with a company that um, built these automatic fish tagging machines. So I, I'm not sure if you're aware of it where you are, but here in the Northwest and in Alaska, um, salmon that come out of hatcheries have a, um, one of their fins is clipped. And I think they have a little like RFID tag or something in their nose. Um, so that they can track what's wild salmon and what's hatchery salmon. Uh, and it used to be all done by hand. So they'd literally have people like with the little smelt that are, you know, an inch to three inches long or something, like clipping these fins manually. And it was a whole industry. And this company designed these machines where they would feed these smelt in one end and it would run the fish through and clip their fins and do the little tag in their nose uh, at some insane rate, like 60 plus, like basically like one a second or more maybe. Jeez. Um, yeah, pretty nuts. And, you know, they're having to like sort them by size so that they're like, you know, they're dealing with live fish at this pace. So it was a massive undertaking. And he was working, I think, basically with a couple of engineers and, like, and some biologists and, you know, he had his his hands in the thick of it, designing and producing all the prototype stuff. Um, and so I kind of like came into this work, like that's what I want to do is that kind of thing where someone brings you a complex problem and you have to like kind of bring all your skills to bear, machining just being one of those things. Um, but it turns out that like as a, I guess I'm like a 24 year old or something like there's not that many people who are going to trust you with those kinds of <laughs> like projects. Like, um, the truth. yeah, understandably, like looking back on it now, like, Oh, it kind of makes sense. Um, I got to do some pretty cool things, you know, honestly, given that. Um, but I sort of like started down the road of like, I don't want to be a production machine shop. I don't want to be like a specialty machinist. I want to make machines and tools and fix things and do all this stuff and machining being one part of that. Um, and that's kind of what I did for a while, but 
it's sort of, I think the way our economy is changing and the way the world's sort of shaped right now, that it's a really hard way to make a living because um, unless there's like, like specialty industries need things repaired, but like Joe down the street doesn't really get things repaired anymore. He just buys a new one. Um, and so you don't really, there's not, it's hard to develop a customer base of people who need repairs done, who want like little custom deals made for things they're working on. Um, and so it was really challenging. Um, but I was kind of like making it work. And then, so in high school, when I started road biking, I sold my mountain bike and this is a mild tangent, but it'll come back. Um, and I didn't have one when I quit road biking, I kind of just stopped riding for several years. I got super into machining. I did some other, um, athletic stuff, but I wasn't riding a bike. And I, I guess it would have been maybe like 2013 or something. I finally bought another mountain bike and mountain bikes had changed a lot in the interim for the better. Uh, and I got really into riding again. Um, and I went on this road trip with my buddy who I rode with and who was a friend all through uh, elementary school and high school. And we'd ridden together for years and years. And he's also a fabricator. Went on this road trip, <clears throat> did a bunch of riding. And on the way home, all of a sudden we were like, hey, we have the skills to build bikes now. We've been talking about this since we were like 10. Like, let's build some bikes. Um, and I crashed my bike the next day and separated my shoulder. Oh, like geez <laughs> yeah but it, it was kind of a, a blessing in, disi in disguise because i was stuck on the couch for at least a few weeks and i was like you know what i'm gonna design a bike um I'll, there's never gonna be a better time so i sat on the couch and designed a bike and because i always seem to tackle things that the difficult way instead of doing what basically every other person who's interested in building a bike does and build a hardtail I was like, I ride full suspension mountain bikes. I don't want to build a hardtail. I'm going to start with building a full suspension mountain bike, which is not the way to go about it. <laughs> if, if the goal is to successfully have a bike in a short amount of time. Yeah, that's diving uh, straight into the deep end. <laughs> yeah, straight straight into the deep end, which is kind of my MO. Uh, but, and so in classic, it, like just the way it is with many things, first we had to build all the tools and that took a long time. Uh, but so I started to build this frame, design this frame. And when I had started the machining thing, like the idea, like, first of all, I've never made that much money. We, like we lived in this off-grid cabin. Uh, we were, I don't know what I was making a month, like probably $700 or something, maybe a couple thousand dollars at the most, like living off of basically no cash. The idea that I would ever have like a CNC machine was absolutely inconceivable. Um, my, my mentor friend, Dave had a old proto track and I was like, wow, that is the most incredible thing in the whole world. Like it moved <laughs> on its own. <laughs> like we, I'd gone over to, to do a thing at his place one time and we'd like thread milled these holes for the Sterling engine I was working on where the cylinders threaded into this. I mean, it's not a block, but effectively like the base plate for the engine. Um, and I was like, that is amazing. Maybe someday, but I can't really comprehend it. So <laughs> fast forward a couple of years to when I'm starting to build bikes. And 
it's clear that like CNC work is going to be necessary to make the linkage and the bracketry and all that kind of stuff. So I started searching around and found a, um, it was a Bridgeport knee mill, like a series one with a centroid conversion on it. That was like a homebrew done version or setup. Um, and it turned out that the guy who built it had died and his brother was basically cleaning out his house and selling off his estate and basically just dealing with it. So I kind of got this like project machine that I could not talk to the person who'd put it together with because he was actually gone. Um, and I was, it ended up being like the machine was okay, but even just like wiring it, like I called up my good friend who's an electrician. I was like, Hey, what does this look like to you? And he was like, Oh God, no electrical engineers. They just use any color for anything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's what it looks like uh but we got it running i didn't know anything about g code cnc like cam at that point uh but just kind of dove in pulled my hair out a lot uh it came with a computer that had an old version of master cam on it and i think i spent like an entire day trying to figure out just how to set up a work the, the WCS. I was like, why won't this work? Like I'm clicking on the stuff. I'm making a toolpath. Why won't it generate a toolpath? Um, you know, silly stuff like that. So the bike building kind of got me into the CNC work with that machine. Um, and I kind of went headlong into building bikes at that point and set this whole Sterling engine thing aside. Um, I was also through this whole period, kind of like easing off jewelry, working. So I think I was down to like three days a week doing that. I was toying with the idea of going back to school for engineering. Um, But a repeating theme has been whenever I think about going to college, some opportunity comes along where I get paid to learn what I'm interested in. Um, So right about like I'm, I'm in the process of like applying for college loans and stuff two people approached me, um, one to do CAD design work, um, and another to do like assembly and some machining for, uh, like, a. they were a chemical engineering startup that were working on, uh, like purification of silicon for solar panel, uh, wafers. Like, um, I don't know how familiar, I was not familiar with the process until I got into this, but like, the more pure the silicon is in a in a silicon wafer, the higher efficiency of electrical conversion you get out of it. And the way they do that is they actually, like instead of it being like some physical process as we would imagine like smelting to be, they actually like convert it to a gas and then like re and then react it with stuff and then like return it into that into a solid from that gas in an inert environment to generate this like super, super pure, I don't remember, it was like whatever, 10 to the negative 20 or something purity of, of silicone. Um, wow. We were trying that's to, insane. yeah. I don't know if that's the actual number. Again, it's been a while, but it was one of those numbers that makes your head hurt a little bit. Yeah, um, well, just that whole process, like it's, I mean, it sounds almost like PVD coating or something where you're, you know, taking a solid. Yeah turning it to gas and then returning it back to solid. And yeah, yeah it's a lot like that. Yeah. Um, so they were setting up basically like a, 
um, a test like prototype reactor to do all this stuff and where they could like, you know, manage the process, dial it in before they would do a big installation somewhere. Um, but it was kind of a weird company. The, the guys were like real old school that ran it. Um, I could not just quite wrap my head around the fact that they were like, we were at a company working on uh, solar panel technology and the lead engineer was like a climate change denier. And what? yeah, and I was like, well, I mean, I guess you're in it cause you like chemistry and, and the money or something, but I, I don't know. It was just kind of an odd situation. So I wasn't there for super long, uh, but it was a cool experience. And I've actually done more work for them off and on over the years. Um, and it, yeah, it just wasn't quite my scene. There was no windows in the building. Um, but then this other company that designed uh, commercial composting systems approached me about CAD design. And I, for my own work, I had bought a copy of uh, a Libre. I don't know if you ever come across that. It was like a SolidWorks knockoff. Yeah, yeah, they, I've seen it uh, yeah. a few times. Yeah, so they, they became like 3D systems, I think, and then came back to Libre. So I had like messed around with that quite a bit and kind of bullshitted my way into being like, yeah, I can... I can work in SolidWorks, no problem. Like they're all the same. Um, <laughs> and again, kind of just jumped into the deep end with that. Uh, so this is all simultaneous to me starting to build bikes at, kind of on the side as a hobby. Um, and did that for about six, six, eight months. Uh, desk job drove me crazy. Um, I just couldn't handle it anymore. It, like it physically hurt. Uh, just sitting at a desk. I don't know. You you probably work at a desk these days, yeah? Uh, I'm like 50, 50 or 60, 40 out on the floor yeah. and at a desk. Gotcha. Well, I have compassion for anybody who has to actually sit at a desk every day because I found it extremely painful. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a good experience. I got like my SolidWorks chops down pretty solid. Uh, and then this guy that I actually met at a yoga class he approached me about working for him and he did um fea in the medical device industry um and also like characterization so people would send him designs for medical devices that would go on a body he'd do fea analysis on the on the design but then we would also like characterize the material in a lab um and this other crazy world the specific thing he hired me for is there's all these companies that basically just like buy up whole lots of patents and then sift through them and be like, eh, maybe this one will fly. Maybe this one will fly. And then they hire people to, to proof of concept them. Um, and so he brought me on to work on this proof of concept for a, a thing that would go inside uh, people's eyes to hold their retina in place while they reattach basically i forget the name of the uh the disorder when your retina starts to detach from your eye but like at the time the way that you would deal with it is they would like inject your eye full of some oil and there would be like this oil bubble that would essentially float you had to like stick keep your head down for like weeks and this oil bubble would like float against your retina and and push it back into place and it was like this is a very challenging procedure or you know uh what's the term like anyway it's a treatment 
for this, they were like, well, if we had come up with this weird little spring thing that we can inject with basically uh, a syringe and it'll hold it in place, then the person can go about their normal life while it reattaches, then we pull it out at some point. Um, and he specialized in uh, nitinol. Are you familiar with that material? Yeah, the heat uh, memory material. Sh- shape memory, yeah, and it's affected by heat. It's a super elastic alloy. Um, it's, uh, it's like if you've seen those glasses that people wear, like just eyeglasses, then you're like, yeah, they bend the hell out of it, and it goes right back to where it was. That's nitinol. Um, it's, I think it's like exactly 50% titanium, 50% nickel. It is like probably the worst material known to man to machine. Like you, you basically can't machine it. Um, <laughs> like actually you, you literally can't, you have to like EDM it, um, or laser cut it or abrasive cut it. Uh, so we're designing this eyeball thing out of nitinol wire and basically he just like let me loose with the CAD program in his lab and a, the way you, you like set it to a shape is you, you uh, attach it to a fixture of some kind and then you dip it into a salt pot that's at like 1100 degrees for, I think it was probably like 20, 30 seconds or something. And basically the, it kind of takes the shape that it was set in. Um, if you were to then heat it up again, it would go back to its original shape, which is the trippy stuff about the material. Um, so I'm basically just like kind of tinkering. Like I've got all this stainless steel tube that I'm using sawing with a handsaw and bending and making these weird little fixtures to wrap this wire around, uh, and making these little like pretend injection tools for like putting it into place. Uh, and like I made a little mock-up eyeball out of a ping pong ball with the hole cut so I could see <laughs> where, like through what the dilated pupil would be and practicing this little procedure and stuff. It was pretty <laughs> trippy. And at the time, like I'd never made money that well there. I'd never made that good of pay. So it was pretty fun. Uh, and then we started running as soon as we got that to like a point, I was like, ah, I can do this pretty well in this ping pong ball. We sent all the stuff that I'd made back to a, a doctor, an eye doctor on the East Coast that was part of the project. And they like attempted the procedure in like a, a pig eye basically that had been taken out of a dead pig. Uh, and they couldn't really do it. They were like, yeah, we kind of need something that's just pl- plug and play. And I was like, wow, that's, I guess that's, I guess that's how that stuff works. Like you kind of imagine that like doctors have like intimate experience with all the tools they use in your body and sometimes it's not like they just buy this kit and they're like yeah this is how you use it you know make an incision here and then plug this thing in oh Uh, my goodness yeah (laughs) it was a pretty interesting window into the whole world of medical i'm sure there's you know lots of people in the machining industry probably people listening to this that have much more exposure and understanding but i was like wow that's pretty crazy that that's how that works um so that project got shut down, but he kept me on and we did this long process where we were uh, doing uh, basically like strain, stress strain analysis and crack propagation characterization in nitinol. And it was like a research paper that he was doing to present at a conference. Um, but it was pretty cool. I built a laser interferometer 
body for him. So he had like, he had the lasers and the lenses, but we built this whole uh, kind of stand that held all the lenses in place. Um, and it got mounted to this optical table. And then uh, I was prepping all these samples, these little like dog bone samples, essentially, that we would put into a, a pure bending fi uh, fixture in a, what's it called? A, a voice coil load frame. So it's basically like a speaker that you could use to stress materials at super high frequencies or low frequencies, depending. Um, and then we we're actually like prepping the face of the sample to have a, and, and applying a, uh, an interference grid onto it. And then Jeez. have a, uh, we had a little, uh, like notch basically, uh, EDM'd into it. So that would be a stress riser. So we'd start the crack there. And then he had this, this like high school kid who was a total whiz with programming, um, develop this program that would take, so basically like we, we put the thing in this fixture, we're stressing it at like say 60 Hertz or whatever. Um, so it's bending back and forth at 60 Hertz. We're shooting these lasers at it and pulling an interference pattern off of it. And then this computer program was set up to take that data. It would strobe in time with the, uh, with the load frame. So we could like look at it like at its deepest part of its bend or the, the flattest part of the bend. And then it would actually analyze the visual data coming off there and we could like see crop, uh, cracks propagate before they were actually propagating. So you could see the material moving before there was ever an actual crack. Um, and it was really cool. Uh, it was quite a interesting project to be a part of. And, um, <clears throat> he basically had me doing prepping all the samples, setting the whole thing up. I was kind of programming the, the load frame. It's, it had like a, I wouldn't call it cam, but it was basically like you'd set up all these different routines with what the frequencies were, how the, how the feedback was, was put back into the machine, whether it was like on displacement or load or all that kind of stuff. Um, and you set up these routines to run it through basically a life cycle of the material. Um, the idea being that like a medical device that goes in your body that's made out of this stuff, like say a heart stent, um, gets like put into one of your arteries and that artery is like contracting and expanding with every heartbeat. And so it's actually stressing the device that's in there. It's like not static. Um, so they have to characterize the specific device and also the material to see what kind of stress and strain and where cracks are going to propagate and if they're going to propagate, like if you're going to put it over the, um, the fatigue limit of the material, basically just from being in the body. Cause you don't, you can't have something like that break. Um, so it was pretty cool. Uh, how did I get down that road? Oh, that was just what I was doing in between. So I quit that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a uh there's a pattern developing here um <laughs> it was kind of high stress uh and we were renting a, we'd moved out of our cabin that we'd built uh because we got tired of trying to live like a normal workaday lifestyle with uh without power and running water so we were renting a place but we were sick of renting so we decided we were going to build ourselves a tiny house 
Um, so we found a place that we could rent uh, that had room for us to build in the driveway. It was a, fr a friend's place that was on some property. And I quit that and just went full bore into basically building the tiny house on a, like a, you know, classic tiny house on a trailer kind of mobile situation. Um, that's did that. crazy that that's what you did. Cause like one of my fiance and my favorite things to do before bed is like watching a bunch of tiny home yeah. uh, YouTube videos recently, over the last, <laughs> I don't know, eight months or so. So that's, that's it, crazy. It is a solution. It's not necessarily the best solution, but it serves a purpose. And, and this, at this point it was like, we weren't ready to buy property. Uh, we didn't want to pay rent. This was like the interim option, basically. Like uh, my grandfather had just passed away and left me some money. Uh, and I, it wasn't like enough to like just go buy a house, uh, but it was enough to build a tiny house. And we're like, well, we can invest in this, uh, save ourselves rent over the next few years, have a place that we can park on property when we finally finally find a place that we want to be. My wife's a farmer um, and has been doing that since... 2008 I think um, and but she'd been working with other farms in other places and we hadn't found a place for her to start her own farm yet um, so when I quit that eyeball thing uh, the night and all job that was the last time I've like properly had a, uh, a a job with someone else so I stopped to build the tiny house and basically just never went back to work and went to work in my shop. Um, and that's when I went headlong into the bikes and was like, I'm gonna be a frame builder. I'm gonna specialize in making full suspension, custom mountain bikes. Uh, this is gonna be my thing. Um, and I built a, a prototype that I rode myself. I built one for a friend. It was like a, kind of a pro-am uh, female enduro racer at the time. Um, and then started working on a Kickstarter campaign to, uh, develop this model that I was going to put out, uh, built the first one on that design and took it to NABS, which is the North American handmade bicycle show in California in 2016. Um, and in that interim year is when I built the shop that I'm in now, which is on my in-laws property. Uh, they were just moving here and my father-in-law was going to build a shop and I was like, Hey, can I help you pay for it? And we'll make it twice as big. Um, hmm. and they were super gracious and, and said yes. Um, and in that process is also when I kind of graduated from the, the Bridgeport Centroid conversion to, uh, buying that Fidal, um, which was my first VMC, um, and my thinking at the time was like, if I'm going to actually build bikes, I need to have a machine that can kind of run and make the machine parts while I weld on the frames and do all the handwork and prep, which was a nice idea. But I wasn't really like comfortable enough as a machinist at that point to just kind of let it do its thing. And I was doing such low volumes of parts anyway that that kind of wasn't really the case. Um, but it got me in the door with a BMC and making those frame parts was was effectively my CNC education uh, because they, I, I always say that like bicycle frame parts, bicycle parts in general have like all of the requirements 
of like aerospace parts in terms of lightness and complexity, but no one wants to pay aerospace prices for them <laughs> and no one gives you proper prints. Um, <laughs> but so it was a good learning experience uh, for CNC work. Um, I was working primarily with 4130 and aluminum and some relatively tight tolerance stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was the Fidal. Uh, what else happened in there? Um, oh, that's also when I got this kind of crazy job that was a distraction from bike building, but uh, also a really good learning experience and kind of more in line with the, the fish tagging kind of thing where some friends, some local friends were starting a kombucha brewing company and they were scaling up and they needed a bottling solution because they were doing like a hand fill. It's like you can get these kind of like semi-automated hand fill solutions, um, mm -hmm. but they don't really work for carbonated beverages. You have to have a counter pressure, they call it. Basically, like you pressurize the bottle so that when you fill it, the the solution, the carbonation doesn't come out of solution uh, while it's filling and just turn to foam in the bottle. Um, and in classic style, they were like, hey, we're looking at these used machines, but we kind of don't like them. We want to have something that will use different bottles and we can adjust and does all this stuff. Do you think you could match the price of a used machine? And I was like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> That'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, um, of course. Yeah. It's like learning the lesson of the difference between understanding how something works and understanding how to make something work. Uh, and one is an order of magnitude more difficult. Um, so I said yes to this and they kept kind of adding on features that they wanted. Uh, and I kept saying yes. And it turned into like a year long almost process of building this bottling machine. Uh, and I was doing the whole thing from scratch. So like all the machining, all the design, all the automation of it. And what it kind of ended up being is they wanted a machine that could fill uh, several different size bottles, could uh, with counter pressure, you know, carbonated beverages, several different size bottles. And they wanted to be able to cap it as well with two different styles of caps. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah, it was, it was pretty naive of me to take it on, but, uh, and it could have potentially sunk, sunk me for sure as a business. Luckily, like my expenses at the time were still extremely low. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was, it was quite an experience learning about basically it was like, that was my education in pneumatics and PLC controls. Um, a lot. I learned a lot on, on YouTube about how bottling lines work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it turns out like the very, the most difficult part of the whole process is how to get caps all turned the same way. Like you don't think about that when you start, you're like, Oh yeah. Okay. We'll put the caps on the thing. Then we'll press them into place. Like, Oh, how do you get 800 caps all facing the same direction? Huh? That's a challenge. Um, and it probably could have done a pretty good, I probably could have done a even better job, but the budget was really tight and I felt constrained on time. Uh, so I think they, the machine's still running They're They've been using it now for, I think like f close to five years, uh, but they don't use the capping portion of it. They just use the filling portion. <laughs> um, oh no. Yeah, but that's fine. Uh, I'm, you know, 
the fact that they're still using it and they don't hate me is great. <laughs> uh, a big, a big challenge as well was the fact that like, uh, kombucha is not necessarily a, a really uniform product. So we were dealing with like troubleshooting. Like I built the thing. I tried it with carbonated water. It worked great. Then I took it down to their place. We tried to run it with like their product in it, their kombucha product, which had like varying levels of carbonation at different temperatures. And then like all these crazy herbs and stuff they were throwing in there. And it was, uh, it took me weeks to get it to run consistently. Um, there was a lot of foam everywhere and half full bottles. And it was just like, what have I got myself into? <laughs> this is insane. Um, so yeah, where are we now? Uh, it's sorry, like, what, 2015, long. 2016. I'm, it's actually, yeah. I'm, I'm going through your Instagram and like following along the story. Cause you, you, you had, yeah. you took a lot of pictures of all of these things. So it's actually kind of cool yeah um, to see the the origin story yeah yeah my my instagram started as like like in bikes and then pretty quickly i was like oh this is not a bike company <laughs> what am i saying <laughs> <laughs> um i did do the kickstarter i made like i think a little over a dozen of those frames um some through the kickstarter some just for for local folks there's a bunch of them still out there um and that was a cool process. And for a while I was like, oh, I'm going to be a machine shop and I'm also going to build bikes. And it just wasn't really, they're, they're pretty different skill sets and the way you have to set up your shop is pretty different. Uh, and I just wasn't able to put the time towards the frame building and have like slowly pushed that to the side. Um, it took me a long time to kind of admit that that's not what I was doing anymore. But uh, yeah, so for all, Ran that for some years, and then this opportunity—well, <laughs> sort of an opportunity. Uh, some guy posted on one of the machinist groups on Facebook that he had a Herco for sale that he needed gone in a week, and was selling for like four thousand dollars, and it was down in Oregon. And I was like, "Oh, I should, I should buy this. Like, this seems like a great deal." <laughs> and of course, uh, it's never as great as it sounds. So I went down to look at it. No, no, never. Went down to look at it. Everything seemed fine. And then, like, right before we shut it down, uh, the table just, like, rapided to zero. And I was like, that's pretty weird. And the guy's like, yeah, there's an issue with the power, the, uh, the DC power supply. Like, it's a known thing. I'll take the cost of a new one off of it, off the cost of the machine. I was like, all right, everything else checked out. Like, it cut a good circle. Um it's, it seemed like it was a big step up from my Fidal. So the Fidal I had was this kind of oddball machine. It was called their VMC 40. So it was a 40 taper. Uh, it was like 8,000 pound machine, but it only had a 20 by 16 travel um, and took up more space than what a Speedio's S700 takes up. So it was kind of an oddball. You could only get two vices on the table and the tool change was oh, wow. slow and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But Good starting place. Um, I was like, the Herco is a 20 by 40. Uh, it's got 24 tools, a dual dual arm tool changer. Like it's going to be a huge step up. It's 14,000 pounds. Going to be able to take a heavy cut, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so I found a rigger and who went down, loaded it up, had it trucked back. And my shop is in a very challenging location from a, doing business standpoint 
where at the end of a long dirt road, at the end of a very steep and twisty gravel driveway. Um, yeah, you can't you can't get a big truck properly to the shop. You can get it like a block away if you have a very willing truck driver. Uh, but like you're, I don't get deliveries here. I have to go pick them up from a friend's shop where I have everything delivered. Uh, so the guy, he brought it in, brought in a big forklift. We actually like forklifted a mile across town from where the trucker dropped the machine up to my shop. Um, got it loaded in. It was uh, one couple of the weight covers were messed up. One of them was missing. So I had to put a bunch of money into it right off the bat. But I was like, this is going to be my my nice machine, like get it set up right. I put a nice uh, sub plate on it, like with a grid pattern and dowel pin receivers and all this stuff. I'm like, I'm going to set up fixtures, do the whole nine yards. And then like I was getting the tool change. There was a little bit of funk in the, the alignment for the tool change between the spindle and the, the dual arm. Mm-hmm. And so I had it like I was running through the manual set up so, so I could dial in the Z height and it's sitting there and all of a sudden the Z axis goes wild straight down into the into the arm of the tool changer and it breaks the end of it off the whole thing is torqued like all the hell uh the machine finally alarms out and I was just like oh my god what just happened and it turned out that the like the main motion control board in the control was faulty and that's what the problem had been all along even though oh my goodness yeah so now i had like a big paperweight with i need the the new board was like eight grand and i had to rebuild the tool changer um and so that was a real pain in the ass (laughs) but i did end up i had to borrow some money from my family to buy the board uh i rebuilt the tool changer i had to go like use my friend's press to straighten out the shaft because it was bent and realign the whole uh, transmission, they call it, the all the inner workings of the tool changer. Mm-hmm. Um, but got it running and was kind of just doing my thing. And then um, a friend, who's actually just an acquaintance, we'd only met once, um, he was like, Hey, I'm going to IMTS. My job is paying for a hotel room. If you want to come, you can just stay for free. And I was like, Hmm, intriguing. <laughs> oh, wow. uh, yeah. So he works at uh, the Naval shipyard here as a tool maker. Um, and at that point he was a, uh, he was like teaching their apprenticeship program. Um, so he had some clout and was able to, to get his way paid. Um, hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to buy a new machine. I swear I won't buy a new machine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And we spent, we spent the whole week there. We had a lot of fun. Went to like the, the event that, uh, Saunders and Grimsmo and, uh, uh, Pearson hosted at M hub or whatever. And did that whole deal and spent a week around Chicago and, uh, basically convinced myself that I needed a new machine <laughs> and uh, came home and was trying to figure out how to make it work. Um, oh, and side note, found out while I was there that my wife was pregnant, 
with our child. Um, <laughs> oh my so, goodness. Whole life is turning upside down. So I come home like gonna about to have a baby, need to figure out how to make some more money. Uh, machine payment seems like a great idea. <laughs> yeah, just throw that on there. Yeah, just add it on top. It's perfect. Um, but uh, I was like, okay, I'm not going to do it. Really, I fell in love with the M140, the Brothers Studio M140. I was like, that is a cool machine. Like, in theory, it could do everything. Came home, got a quote for it, and I was like, and put a little spreadsheet together of everything that would cost, all the, all the associated costs. And I was like, oh, man, that's looking pretty close to 200 grand by the time everything is said and done. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but, and so I kind of put it to bed. Um, and then the local, uh, what's it called? Ganesh salesman came by and he was like, uh, trying to talk me into buying one of their drill tap centers. And I was like, well, that's a pretty reasonable price. So it kind of got me going down that road. And then I was like, ah, oh, for kicks, I should probably get a, a robo drill and a speedio quoted out as well. And I was like, well, they're actually not that far off. And uh, I came home from, from IMTS kind of like I had up until that point been like, I don't want to make lots of parts. Like I want to make machines. I want to design stuff from scratch. And through that whole time, I was like, you know, the, the process of doing production is actually really intriguing and you're kind of doing that on a regular basis in producing lots of parts and kind of setting those systems up. Um, and I was like, I think I really need a machine with a fourth axis to kind of, you know, streamline things to be able to make a living at this. Um, and so I ended up that uh, when all was said and done, I managed to weasel somebody into lending me some money <laughs> to buy that first speedio. Uh, and just was kind of like, I don't need to make much money. Uh, so worst, worst case scenario, we won't eat, I guess, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I can make, uh, what was it? Like $2,400 a month. If, if all else fails and not lose the machine. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of how a new machine world started for me. And it, it's been great. It, it opened up a lot of doors for sure. Yeah. And started you down the Speedio Mafia route. Yeah. I had, you know, the, I was like kind of born in the like more iron is better old school kind of mentality. Um, and I think the first person I ever saw who had one was uh, Tactical Keychains. And I remember like I saw his first post with the Speedio and I was like, oh, no, why did you do that? <laughs> and you know now i'm like super proponent uh of the whole style of of machining um and you know someone else who i really respect in the machining world who's also in the bicycle industry industry at one point was like that's a job for a robo drill this was before i'd even heard of a speedio and i was like what's a robo drill and looked it up and i was like oh that's that's kind of interesting um and when i bought that that herco i was like well now i kind of have like a, a heavy duty 40 taper and a strange 40 taper. Um, ideally, I would have a 40 taper and a 30 taper and be able to kind of put jobs on either one that were appropriate for, for either. And so I was kind of convincing myself that I needed to get rid of the Fadal to 
to replace it with a 30 taper. But I think really, I just wanted a really, I just wanted a fast machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's funny how once you have your mind made up, whether you think you have your mind made up or not, you, you start finding reasons and uh, making excuses and you're like, Oh no, no, this is the right thing to do no matter what. It's definitely uh, yeah, that's what happens. And you know, on the business side of this, it's like, it's really hard to know when you're in the right and when you're in the wrong with that. And so far it's worked out, but it's, it's mostly worked out by just not paying myself very well. And that's kind of one of my big goals for this next year is to get the business to a point where I can make a, a fair wage. And it was really refreshing listening to your last guest last week uh, from Pantechnicon design. And um, I, I felt like he had a lot of really good insight on the business side of things. Cause we can, dork out about machining all day but like what usually sinks these sinks a shop is not the fact that you can't make good parts i think it's that you can't run a business very well yeah yeah i'm, I'm really looking forward to reading that book that he recommended on uh why i should pay myself a fair wage when i go full-time yeah was that the extreme no that was the simple numbers book is that right yeah i got it right here it is simple yeah numbers, straight talk and big profits yeah I'm going to have to check that out as well because I just kind of never made money that much and got used to it. And, but now we have a child and a mortgage and it's like nice to buy what you'd like to eat at the grocery store <laughs> and be able to fix your car and just the basic life stuff. I'm like, this can't go on like it, like this forever. Uh, something's got to give at some point and bringing on a partner um, he makes a pretty decent wage right now. So if I want to get him in here full time, we've, we've got to get the business on its feet to a point where it can pay both of us a good wage. Um, so that's my, that's my primary goal going forward. Yeah. So that actually, that's a good segue right into our questions that we got from the listeners. Uh, Jonathan yeah. F. Rowley asked, how did you come to have a partner in the business and what are your thoughts on being a solo entrepreneur versus having a partner when it comes to machining? Yeah, I, I've wanted a partner for a long time. Um, I, I mean, I'm perfectly capable of, of working alone, but I like working with other people. I like being collaborative. Um, and it's nice to have someone to bounce ideas off of. Um, I will be the first to say that I don't always have the best idea about how to go about something. I, I usually come up with something that works, but, um, even just having him here, it's been like one to two days a week, basically, since I think June. Um, there's been several occasions where I've been like, hey, what do you think about this? And he's like, no, I don't think that. I think you should do it this way. I'm like, oh, you're totally right. <laughs> like, what was I thinking? That was a terrible way to go about it. Um, so on the on the day-to-day, -day, there's that. And then also just, I think... Uh, you've probably experienced this, but running a business, uh, there's an emotional toll for sure of the stress of, of trying to make it all work um, and having someone to kind of share that with uh, just makes a lot of sense to me. Kind of carry the carry the burden between on two sets of shoulders and um, have someone with different skill sets, you know, slightly different skill sets, different perspectives. I think it, it just adds a lot of value. Um, I do think it's not a, like a for sure thing. It's 
I've joked with a lot of people that it's like owning a business with somebody is like it's the closest thing you'll get to being married, but you don't get to have any makeup sex when things go wrong. <laughs> so it's like you're you're financially entangled. You spend a ton of time with each other. You have to deal with each other's quirks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's none of that. You know, you, you don't have the what you have in a marriage where uh, besides makeup sex, obviously, but, you know, just all the joy <laughs> that comes in, in a marriage and uh, the ways that you blow off steam. So I think, you know, there's a lot of potential pitfalls. Um, but I the way this came about is I've sort of been trying to find a partnership of some kind for quite a while. And I've explored some different things with different friends. Um, and basically he was like, we, he and I had been tossing ideas around for a long time. Uh, but it's a challenge as I'm sure you have discovered, you know, like people have been giving you a hard time for not going full-time in your shop. But I just want to say like, I 100% understand the challenge inherent especially at this point in your life when you've had a good job you probably have a standard of living you're you're used to you have financial responsibilities like it's not just like you know like we're talking about responsibly buying new machines like it's not responsible just to like throw everything in the you know all your eggs in one basket and be like oh, i think this is going to work out um so we've been talking about ideas, kicking ideas around for how to make it work. And we kind of didn't really have a good good plan for a long time that wasn't going to either put a lot of risk on one of us, a lot of financial strain on one of us, or a lot of time strain on one of us. Um, but this in June, it got really busy and he was like, hey, I'll just come help you one day a week. Um I, you know, he gets, he works like a, what they call a, what is it? Four five, nine. So he gets every other Friday off. Um, he was like, I'll come by every other Friday at the least and help you with stuff. And we'll just kind of feel it out. See, see if we even like working together. Um, we'd met through mountain biking. Um, and we, I really enjoyed having him here. I think he enjoys being in the shop. And so we were just tossing ideas around. And that, that's actually how the second speedio came about. Um, is kind of a multi-pronged approach i was like in order for this shop to support your salary and my salary we're going to need to have a little more capacity because the hurt goes slow um it's also it ends up sitting there a lot because it makes sense to put machines on the speedio but then the speedio gets backed up um so having two machines that i can jump jobs back and forth and programs back and forth from makes a lot of sense and then the way we're working this partnership thing is basically he's working uh, quarter time more or less, but instead of paying him, I put the money towards that machine payment and that's his equity in the business over the next year or two while he's still just here part time. And then at some point he will come full time and do a proper buy-in. And that's when, so it's like we're sort of in an interim um, agreement. And I felt like that was a way that was kind of a win-win for all of us where, the shop, he, he's investing in the shop, but it's not putting a lot of strain on his life and his finances. Um, I, the shop is getting a lot out of it and increased capacity um, without putting a huge strain on me. Um, and I and we are getting his labor to 
help pay for that work. So I've, that's awesome. I've got, that's a really good yeah. way to structure it. I was going to ask how you guys were working that up, but that sounds like yeah. a really equitable way that neither of you is, is really getting hurt yeah. by it, I guess. It's a pretty win-win situation. Yeah, because uh, we had gone back and forth on all kinds of different things, and it was like, no matter what, in any other scenario, like one of us was going to be caught with like one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat and like the boat go out to shore and be like, ah, how's this going to work out? Um, and I, you're obviously experiencing that right now where there's like at some point, if you just like swap switch from one to the next, like you have to take this leap and it's something's going to be uncomfortable. Um, so that was our solution for now. And then at some point, and he's going to focus on kind of building up some, some money that he can buy into the business with uh, when he comes on full time. Awesome. Um, yeah. So I think it's going to work out really well. And uh, we may need to hire an employee as well at some point, but I'd rather have him in here. Uh, it was pretty amazing. Like the first day he showed up, I was like, Hey, we got these six parts. Which one do you want to work on? Uh, he's like, oh, I'll take that one, handed him the print. And he was like, you know, 20 minutes later, he's like, where do you keep your screwdrivers? I was like, over there. He's like, cool. And then an hour later, where's the wrenches? Over there. Cool. And then at the end of the day, he had stuff made. And I was like, well, that was amazing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good know, right there. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, like, he's going to fetch a good salary because he's really capable. Uh, and we have to get the business to that point where it can pay him what he's worth. But um, I have no regrets about that. Uh, I think it's going to be a great way to go. Like I've had a couple of people in here, just little kids for like, or not little kids, little jobs with like teenagers. <laughs> um, and you know, it's every time I'm kind of like, was it worth it? Like I probably could have just done it myself. Um, the only times right. it's really been worth it is with like really tedious jobs. Um, that I was like, I just can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the partnership thing. I think it's not for everyone. Uh, if you're, if you're coming at it from a pure bean counting perspective and like want to make the most profit at the end, I think there's strong arguments to be made for not having a partnership, um, and just hiring employees, but, uh, from a quality of life standpoint and just sustainability of the business, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I've got a lot of friends in business in partnerships who swear by it. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously I'm a strong proponent of it too. And I, I definitely echo your uh, sentiment about having somebody to bounce stuff off of. And, and like, for me, I, I think that like Brad's a really competent machinist and, and I like being able to bounce things off of him as far as that goes. But really it's like the business thing because neither of us are trained businessmen. And so like when I come across like, Oh, you know, this customer is being difficult or like, you know, how do you think that this sounds like this? Does this sound like a good response to what they're, they're asking? Like, it's nice to have somebody else besides my own mind to just mull things over. Um, yeah. It's really, really nice. Yeah, for sure. Um, he's definitely, I think more my, my partner, John, um, he, I think, has a wider range of experience when it comes to pure machining because he's worked in more shops and on more machines. Um, and he's actually, like, been trained, <laughs> whereas I just kind of, like, figured out my way through this stuff. Um, but he's never really handled the business side of things. 
uh, and I wouldn't call myself an expert in that by any stretch, but I'm learning and kind of jumping in with both feet. So we have a lot of overlap in the machining, but I think in the long term, probably he's going to probably lead that side of the business. And I will end up most likely leading. There'll be a lot of overlap, obviously, but taking taking more of a direct hand in the business side of things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the yeah. If I've learned anything from, you know, some of these books I've read is that, you know, there's always going to be some overlap there, but you definitely want to have like a, a clear definition of, you know, what your main roles are and things like that. So it sounds like yeah. you, you already have a, a really good inkling of what that's going to be. Yeah, I think so. And it's not necessarily what I would choose if I was like, what's my dream? Like, I like learning machines. Um, honestly, I'm happiest when I'm like, juggling three machines and running back and forth from one to the next, but that only keeps the business going for a day. <laughs> uh, and you gotta, you gotta keep the, the business side of things going, uh, communication, quoting, ordering, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, that's how it's going to be for a while, I think. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned the new Speedio, uh, Thomas Hosford asked, you know, he wanted to hear the epic nightmare oh. story of getting the Herco out and getting the new Speedio in. Um, and I, yeah. I remember you posting about it, but I don't remember the story either. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Yeah, I didn't go into a lot of detail because uh, I didn't want to. Yeah, I don't want to throw the guy under the bus, but I, I just won't use his name. Um, I don't <laughs> think <laughs> I don't think he had any real ill intent, uh, but I, uh, he made a couple choices that I thought were poor <laughs> and uh and then at the end didn't kind of wasn't real uh what's the word it, it just courteous or like good about it so basically like my mention i'm in this weird spot the shop is in this challenging to get to place um and i kind of knew that hiring like a reputable rigger was going to be exceedingly expensive um, and I worked with this guy twice before he brought in the, the Herco originally, and then he brought in the first speedio that I brought and took out the foot all, um, and everything had been fine. He's like a one man show has got his own truck, rents forklifts. Um, and with this one, I was like, you know, I could bring in, I get the speedio small, like I could deal with it myself. Uh, but whatever, I'll just have him deal with the trucker and bring it in. He'll move the Herco out and take it to the buyer. Um, that's how he's going to make most of his money. And uh, I'll pitch him a little cash for just unloading it off the truck, the Speedio off the truck and getting it in here. <clears throat> um, so he doesn't have a, a facility where he can receive machines like most riggers would. So mm -hmm. I'll start by saying that I know that the correct way to go about this is to have the, the rigger <laughs> receive the machine and then just bring it to you but it seemed a little out of the question for this. Um, so he doesn't have a location. So he was just going to like juggle it with the, the trucker and the trucker showed up like a day earlier than we expected. So <clears throat> he was like, well, I'll just, I'm going to have him bring it to my place. I'll unload it at my place and then bring it up later in the week when I have time. It's just like his house. I think he postponed that. Then the next day he was going to have them bring it to this other place where he was doing a bunch of rigging in this big woodworking shop and he was going to put it in their facility for the night and then bring it up the next day. Then he postponed that and he was just going to meet 
the trucker at my friend's shop here in town where we'd unloaded machines in the past. I was like, cool, whatever, you're handling it. That's great. The morning of, so this is a Wednesday, uh, we're supposed to meet the trucker at 10. He calls me at nine. He's like, hey, I'm going to be a couple hours late. Uh, I had some legal stuff come up with my ex-wife. I'm running around, getting documents, taking them to the lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, okay, well, I guess, <laughs> I guess that's what you got to do. Uh, a couple hours late, it's not the end of the world. So I drive over to get my stuff together and meet the trucker. And I was like, I better just stop and tell him that he's running late. So I pull up and I'm like, hey, how's it going? Um, I just want to let you know that the rigger is a couple hours late. And this guy's like, couple hours? And I think he was Turkish. Like, it was a very strong accent. I can only understand every couple words. Uh, so he yells a bunch of stuff. I'm like, ah, I don't really know what you're saying. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he gets his dispatch on the phone and hands the phone to me. My, it's COVID time. So we're like, trying not to be close. Like we're in masks, like trying to figure out this whole situation. Uh, and the, the dispatch is like, Hey man, like you guys have already rescheduled on us twice. Like, this is not cool. He's clearly pissed off. Um, and I was like, okay, well, we'll try and figure something out. Um, I'll go talk to the guys here, see if we can use their forklift. This BDO shipping weight listed on the, like the, whatever the shipping packing slip is like 4,700 pounds. My friends at the wood shop there have this like super clapped out 5k forklift with four foot forks. <laughs> and I'm like, this is oh. probably not going to work, but I'm going to go ask them if it's okay. Anyway, uh, as I'm walking in the, the Yamazen salesman calls me, he's like, Hey, what's going on there? They're going to start charging us for delay times right now. Like, uh, can, what, what's going to happen? Like, can you figure out a way to get it off? I'm like, Oh God, this is just getting more expensive by the minute. Um, so my friends say that I can use the forklift. The trucker's like, great. He starts unstrapping this thing. I'm like, oh, I don't I'm not even sure if this is going to lift it. <laughs> um, we put on these like, like Amazon quality fork extensions. They're just like bent sheet metal into a, you know, a channel with like a little hook at the back, but they're eight foot fork extensions. And we, we drive it over there. Oh, first of all, we can't get it out of park. <laughs> to start off with, like, oh, this is not great. <laughs> I can't even drive the thing at first, but we finally like get the parking brake loose because it was like seized. Uh, and we do like a little test lift and the rear fork extension is bending like two inches on the far corner, like clearly visible bent. And I'm like, this is terrible. And the extensions are lifting off. So I have John run up to our shop. He's got a bunch of like really heavy duty C-clamps and brings them back we clamp the fork extensions to the forks in a few different places we do a bunch of blocking to try and get everything leveled out we do another lift everything comes up okay and we get it off the truck and lower it down and the truck driver's happy he drives away i'm like sweet we dodge that bullet no one's going to charge us any money crisis averted and we get it loaded onto my trailer uh, I text the rigger. I'm like, hey, we got it off. No stress. They're not going to charge us, etc. So we drive it up onto my trailer to my shop and wait. And he's six hours late when he finally shows up. So it's like, this is November. <laughs> We're 
we're in Washington, so it's like 4.45. We've got like maybe 40 minutes of light left. Um, so he pulls up just down the hill from my shop, unloads the forklift, and he's like, I got to get this truck back down the hill through those tight corners while it's still light out because we're not going to make it if it's dark. So he leaves the forklift with me, drives the truck back down. I got to figure out how to drive a, what was it? I think it's like a 25,000 pound capacity diesel forklift, <laughs> like get it up to the shop and like move everything around that needed to be moved with a forklift. Like I have a pallet stacker here, but I don't have a proper forklift. And there was all this stuff that I'd palletized to, to ship and it needed to get out of the way. So I'm like learning how to drive this thing, getting stuff moved around. Um, and so backing up slightly when I'm prepping the, uh, the Herco to move it, um, I had run just like traditional miscible coolant in there. And I was going to, I, as I'd gotten new machines, I was switching over to the synergy, the Blazer synergy. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I had a bunch of the, the concentrate left over and I was pumping out the coolant out of the sump and cleaning it. And I, I just asked the guy who's buying it. I was like, Hey, do you, he was going to take the concentrate. I was like, Hey, do you want the coolant out of the machine? And he was like, sure. Yeah, I'll take it. I was like, sweet. That's easy. So I pumped it into a barrel. I didn't have the locking ring for the lid, um, but it had the seal. So I like put it on a pallet, got the seal, shrink wrapped it, ratchet strapped the whole thing down to the pallet. Everything seemed cool and kosher. So going back to, to moving the machines, he shows up, it's like six o'clock at this time after having gotten his truck back down the hill and back up. Um, and we all kind of jump into gear, moving stuff around, getting the Herco out of here. And we're going through the logistics. I'm like, okay, so you guys are going to forklift the Herco down the machine, down the hill. Let's put these three pallets of stuff. So it's like all the tooling, phase converter, this drum of coolant, uh, you know, like manuals, spare parts, all that kind of stuff. And he's like, what's that in the drum? I was like, it's coolant. He's like, huh, hazmat. Huh, okay. And then he just like keeps going back to what he was doing. I was like, well, okay, whatever. I guess it's not a big deal. Um, so we put it on the trailer, get everything loaded, get the speedio back in the, into the shop. And it's like 9.30 at this point. Um, all the pallets are on my trailer. They start driving the Herco down the hill. And uh, I go down with the truck and my trailer and the pallets on the back. Get that all unloaded. It's like 10.30 now. And uh, I'm like, okay, are we cool to go? Like, I got to get home. Like, I've got a one-year-old at home. Um, I'm exhausted. Uh, he was like, yeah, how much did we agree on for price? And I was like, well, we talked about a thousand bucks for unloading the Speedio, but I kind of did half of it. Um, so I don't know if that's fair. And he kind of started hemming and hawing about it. And I was like, whatever, I do not want to argue about this. Uh, so I pull out my checkbook. <laughs> this is a funny thing. I'm like, I pull out my checkbook. He's like, oh, I was kind of hoping for cash. It's like, oh, I didn't have cash. And I was like, well, what are the options? He's like, well, also my uh, debit card's not working. So he's, his, he'd had his nephew working with him the whole time. Mm -hmm. it was like, just, they were fighting the whole time, which made this super fun on top of everything else. Uh, just swearing at each other and arguing about how they were going to go about stuff. So I ended up having to like Venmo his nephew the $1,000. I'm like, whatever, this is done. I'm going home. My machine is on the floor. It's in his hands. I'm out of it. I hit the road. 
go home, put my phone on silent so we don't wake my daughter up. I eat a little bit of food and go to bed. The next morning, I wake up, check my phone. There's a text. Uh, there's and it's, it was like uh, there's an issue with this barrel of coolant. I was like, huh, that's a little weird. Uh, so I responded. I was like, did you get it figured out? And I don't hear anything. I go to work. Uh, John's there that day. We're working like three in the afternoon. Uh, I get a response. No, I left it on the side of the road. What? Like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you gotta be kidding me. You left it on the side of the road. And we had this whole back and forth about it. He was like, yeah, I couldn't get it to seal. It was going to, you know, splash coolant on my tires and ruin my braking. I couldn't afford it, you know, that risk. And I couldn't get it back up the hill because it was leaking. And I was like, it wasn't leaking. We'd moved it three times with the forklift at that point and driven it down the hill on my trailer. It hadn't been leaking. It turned out that he had like unpacked that whole pallet that I'd put together, unstrapped it, seen that it wasn't attached and then like couldn't get it to seal properly again and just ditched it on the side of the road. And oh my goodness. Yeah, I was pretty pissed. And that's so that's in like my little town where it's like a little beach town it's like a you know like you know everybody and he's like left this barrel of toxic waste <laughs> attached to my name next to the like community center across the street from the beach <laughs> and you know a barrel of coolant is like 400 pounds or something it's not like i was just going to go down with a buddy and pick it up and put it in my truck um so i had to like tractor i had to trailer my tractor over here from home and drive it back up the hill and um yeah, so after having paid him $1,000 for a job that he didn't do and then have him waste half of my day having to deal with that and having him argue about the fact that that was a bad choice, I was uh, not very pleased. I guess I'll, I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't blame you. That's, that's insane. Um, but it was a good story, so... Yeah, it is a good story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I won't be hiring him again. I will probably be buying my own forklift soon instead, <laughs> or next time I need to move any machines. Probably safer than than trying that again. Yeah, but um, yeah. still, I'm glad yeah. everything you know landed safely, more or less. Besides, you know, the coolant. But uh, yeah, I'm floor, considering that. Running, so. Yeah, yeah. And he unloaded the other machine fine, so the other guy was super happy who bought it. I was like, well. All right, that's fine then. Um, yeah, has made me consider a side hustle and rigging. I think there's money to be made there. <laughs> Probably better money than machining. <laughs> oh, it ain't that the responsible. Like, yeah, it's insane how much they charge. Like I, we, our lathe that we bought, our manual lathe, we moved from literally across the street. Like if you go up our street to the main, next main road and across the street, it was at the the, the building across the street. And I think yeah. they still are just like 1500 bucks or 1200 bucks or something like that. Oh, and it's like, man. like we thought about just renting a forklift and driving it across the street at night and like figuring it out. But we were yeah. like, you know, no, we'll, we'll, we'll pay the rigors. We'll do it right. And then, yeah, we um, immediately regretted that. Yeah. I've moved a lot of machines myself and I'm pretty comfortable with it at this point. Um, as long as they're under like 10,000 pounds, um, at least with the, kind of equipment that we have you know the couple times i've hired that guy i've been like i could definitely do this job um as well as you are 
I bought this Hitachi in June down in Oregon and we unloaded it here with actually without any tools at all. I mean, without any like heavy lift equipment, just with skates and come alongs and stuff. Um, and it went all right. It was a longish day, but, and it would have been nice to just pick it up with a forklift and drop it. But it's also nice not to spend $3,000 to have a $3,000 machine moved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I completely agree. Um, let's see. What other questions do we have? Uh, oh, Thomas Hosford had also asked, what goes into building full suspension mountain bike frames? Because that is not like a, a usual thing that at least I've seen on Instagram or anything like that. You know, usually the boutique yeah. builders are building hardtails or, you know, road bikes or something like that. Yeah, there's a reason <laughs> for sure. Um, there's a handful of guys doing it. Uh, most of them are doing like uh, model lines, not custom geometry. Um, yeah, the. The design time, it's really front front loaded on the design time. And then there's just a lot more parts, but you can't really charge an equivalent increase. Um, so it's a very challenging market. That's why I chose not to pursue it, really. Um, I didn't do a good job when I started of, of really properly pricing out what a bike like that would cost to build. I was kind of like, I'm going to build it see if people want it, figure out the, figure it out as I go. Um, not the way to do it, but, uh, yeah, I, I kind of, I had the idea that I wanted to come up with my own suspension design. Um, and I did, and it had some, it had some inherent quirks that made it not necessarily appropriate for a super wide range of users. Like it, it works well for, the kind of the middle of the road rider, uh, really aggressive riders. Um, basically, I don't know how much into suspension kinematics you get, but it has a falling rate leverage ratio. So the effective suspension rate, uh, let's see, basically to put it in simple terms, the spring gets softer as you go deeper into the travel, which is the reverse of what most suspension designs are are oriented towards um so basically like if you hit something super hard you'll bottom out the suspension but i was trying to ride the line between one patented design and another patented design and kind of like that middle place that i ended up was this linkage scenario um that produced really good pedaling and like power transmission kinematics but had this uh spring rate issue um but yeah it's basically like uh the, the actual welding part of it has a whole bunch of challenges in that you're trying to basically combine two two welded structures which are inherently going to have weirdnesses to them um inaccuracies uh combine them with a bunch of very accurate machined parts and then have everything move smoothly and have the bike stay straight at the end of it. Um, it's certainly a challenge. Uh, I kind of went about it a few different ways, but what I settled on was <clears throat> basically like building the front end and welding all the linkage pos uh, positions in place, the mounting positions, 
in place with a fixture um, and then doing the same with the rear and then fixturing them up on the mill table and reaming them in place after everything was welded together so that I knew that it, um, it was all square. Uh, and it worked pretty well. Um, it's not perfect, but there's also this obsession with like perfection and alignment in the bike industry. And then you look at how bikes actually, a lot of production bikes are made and no one ever notices the fact that things are totally out of square and our bodies aren't symmetrical. And, you know, it, it's kind of a funny obsession, but it's also nice to be proud of your work. So I'm not sure quite, quite where I land with that stuff in the end, it could go back and forth on it a lot. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that fully answers the question. It's it's a lot of design time and things can go sideways really quickly in the finished bike if you don't keep everything right where it needs to be. Yeah, sure sounds like it. I mean that I've only ridden a few full suspension bikes and I can't even imagine designing it all and figuring that all that out. So I definitely yeah. give you props there. <laughs> yeah, it was a learning experience as I went. Definitely started with that injury on the couch being like basically throwing some points on the on the page and cat and like dragging them around and kind of seeing how stuff worked and then later i discovered a program that kind of lets you map it out a little bit better and map out your your spring rates and ratios and all the different kinematic aspects of it that's awesome yeah um let's see so built by hutch had given you two questions uh he's and you've actually got some really cool work holding and fixturing stuff. So he, he wanted to know what's your go-to methods for holding odd shaped parts and favorite fixturing methods. Yeah. Um, so my go-to really is just kind of like the tried and true of mighty bite first op and soft jaw second op, um, <clears throat> for anything that's over like, I don't know, 500 parts. I'm a big fan of making pallets. Um, and I found the rock lock bases to be a really good kind of like universal work, like universal base that is works for your vices, but also is a relatively quick palette changing method. Um, so there's like, I don't have a ton of palettes because that was actually, I was referring to when John was like telling me my idea was bad. I, <laughs> I was, I had a big job this summer that was all this, architectural door hardware and the, the parts were all very similar but there was a whole bunch of different sizes in the family and I was trying to design this kind of like universal palette that was going to hold them all and it was proving to be kind of a challenge and he was like just grab them in the vice like you're going to be happier and I did and it worked great and was just as fast and we had parts running in an hour instead of two days later or a day later or whatever um so I would say like when it comes to just holding the part, yeah, my just kind of classic tried and true Mighty Bites and soft jaw is my go-to. Um, when it comes to like the larger work holding, I have found the, the trunnion to be super versatile uh, and save me a lot of headache and time on, on different parts. Uh, and especially, you know, for a while not having a lathe, being able to do round parts on the end and work aside was was pretty helpful yeah definitely that makes total sense i i, I really like your trunnions that you've made both the single-sided one and the the double-sided one they're pretty neat. yeah the single 
was really cool. I kind of miss it, honestly, because <laughs> it, it was it's like sad to see it just sitting there on the shelf. Um, but being able to switch back and forth between the the dual station orange vice and the uh, and the other vices and and palettes really was. So I had um, basically 2019. I bought the first video that very end of 2018. In 2019, I was kind of growing into it. Um, and I wasn't, I was working obviously, but I wasn't making a ton of money or parts. Um, it's like experimenting a lot, learning how to, how to run it. Um, and then mid that year, this company that I'd done a, a decent sized job for the, the year before approached me about this project that they were doing. Um, and another vendor was going to make a part, uh, and they were, and so basically they, they work in, uh, like fall safety, working at height. So like all things to do with working up high on bridges and stadiums and, um, wind turbines and anybody, anywhere that somebody's working at height, they do engineering, training, installation of equipment and all this, everything to do with that. Um, and I'd done a project with them the year before kind of helping them figure out a solution to a, a bind they got into on a project. And they came back to me with this and they were like, we're going to put all these lights up on top of the stadium. And the way the solution that architect had come up with was basically they had these led strips that were like three feet long. The led strip weighs like two pounds and they had designed like a hundred pound bracket to hold it in place. Um, and this company I was working for was going to do the installation uh, and they were basically like bringing these brackets up is going to like triple the cost of, of your installation. We need to figure out a different solution. Um, so they came to me and they're like, Hey, can we just machine a little aluminum bracket that the light bolts to at either end and we'll clamp the I beams. And I was like, yeah, we can definitely do that. Um, so it, there was a lot of going back and forth. The, you would imagine when you look at, a bridge or a big truss system that like all the I-beams are uniform because we don't like look at them that close. Mm -hmm. But in, in actuality, oftentimes like each one is a specific spec for the kind of load that it's under. And in this case, this was for the stadium in Seattle, the baseball stadium. And there was like 20 different specs of I-beams. And so they act the, the distance between the two sides, uh, you know, the, the top and bottom of the I-beam and the thickness of the flange was different on almost every one, but they had to keep the line, the lights in a perfect line within like an eighth of an inch because oh, geez. somebody decided that was an important number. Um, of course. Yeah. So, yeah, of <laughs> course. And there was going to be, I think there was like 1800 different light fixtures. Um, so they had a huge task at hand mapping the whole thing out to figure out basically where each light was going to land. <laughs> you know, sometimes it was like one end of the light would, would land on one beam and one end would land on the other beam. So you'd have to have one, one bracket at one end that clamped a certain size and had a certain hole offset and a different bracket at the other hand that had a different size and hole offset. It was pretty crazy. Um, it took them months and months really to get that whole situation sorted out. 
And actually, when we hit go on the project, um, it was still sort of in process and it, it was quite a quite an undertaking. But all that to say, I made that trunnion basically for making those brackets. Um, they were essentially a little C, like a C clamp kind of um, made out of aluminum with two bolts on one side that did the clamping couple holes on the other side that uh held little hold downs for uh like protection cables to keep them from falling off and then also to for the wiring for the lights and then on the top there was like some engraving for designating the spec of the bracket and then a hole pattern to mount the light to it um and i want to say there was like 55 different iterations or something there was basically I think there was seven different size brackets that, you know, we with different spacers, we could accommodate different flange thicknesses. And then 50 within that, there was like 55 different hole offsets also that they could maintain that straight line of the light. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we're on this crazy deadline because we're racing the weather because they're working on the roof. And it's, and it's not a flat roof and sloped and it's pretty steep at some end. So it's basically if like the winds got to a certain level and it was raining they couldn't be up there. And we started this in like August. And so we're coming into October at the end of the project. And because, you know, from a manufacturing standpoint, I'm like, let's do all of one first and then we'll do all of the next. Cause that makes sense. But they had to work from one side to the other and then, switch to the other truss and then work from the other side to that. So I was having, you know, some of them I ran the same part, probably like six different times at different times in the project. So it was quite a, a juggling act. Um, but I built that trunnion with the base. I built two simple fixtures that held um, for the smaller ones that held four first ops and four second ops. And then for the larger ones, it was two and two. Um, and for nine weeks basically i was just standing there swapping parts and swapping pallets and it was like basically wore out my my allen wrenches on the pit bulls and the versa grips or not the versa grips the uniforce clamps um and i'd usually have about a minute to catch my breath <laughs> before the pallet swapped uh oh and then i had the spacers running in the herco so i was like literally running back and forth and it was pretty crazy um, I built the trunnion for that and wasn't sure I'd keep it on, but it ended up being really versatile. So I've just kept it on there since. <laughs> well, I'm glad it all worked out, but that, yeah, that sounds like quite the undertaking. <laughs> yeah. It was like, I think prior to that, the biggest job I'd done was maybe like, I don't know, $18,000 or something total for a job. And the material order for that job was like $32,000. Like, I remember like I'd be going back and forth with the supplier forever. And finally I was like, and they'd given me terms or whatever, but none of us had read the fine print. And so I like placed the order and like an hour later, their accounting department calls me and they're like, ah, uh, yeah. So you're only approved for $4,000 of credit. And this is a $32,000 order. We're going to have to figure out how to make this work. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh God, we need to be starting to make parts in like two days. Like this can't be happening right now. <laughs> so, 
Uh, and that it was it was an undertaking. It was a really good experience. It was not fun. It was very stressful. Uh, and I but I, but you know it was really cool. That I think the gross on the job was a little over eighty thousand dollars, and it paid for that trunnion to be built, and it paid for the tail support for it, and you know a bunch of work holding stuff and tooling, and um, and then you know honestly because I was just swapping parts for two months, two and a half months, basically, like I wasn't able to keep up with customers and I had no work when I was done, <laughs> uh, which worked out because that's when our, our baby was born uh, a couple months later and I had to work on the house, but um, it kind of paid for me to take a little time off and hang with the kiddo and the family and catch my breath and kind of come back fresh the next spring. But it was, yeah, quite, quite an experience. <laughs> Yeah, no joke. Well, that also kind of runs into uh, his other question, which was, do you like large quantity jobs or one-off difficult jobs? Yeah. Um, you know, if you've got a client who's willing to pay what a one-off difficult job actually costs, I really like them, but I don't have many of those clients. <laughs> so I end up doing a lot of one-off difficult jobs for way too cheap. Um, and that makes me grumpy. Uh, so I've kind of the last year or two been pushing more towards large quantity jobs. Um, just cause I feel like, you know, I, I don't know, there's a little more wiggle room for, I don't know, you, you kind of know that you're going to at least get a decent sized check at the end of it. Um, and I sort of enjoy the, the work holding challenges of, of fixturing and getting parts on and off the machine fast and, gives you time to kind of tweak the program. Um, I find that, you know, when you do a one-off job, you just kind of like run things safe and you don't ever push the machine. And um, so I, I, I enjoy both. Um, I do have a bad habit of like when things are a loose tolerance, I'm like, oh, don't even check it. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. Um, and a couple of times that's gotten me into a bad spot. Um, and it's fun when there's a, a difficult job and you really have to pay attention to every little thing and, and make sure it's all perfect. Um, so yeah, I'd say I like both. Obviously I have a speedio or a, we have two speedios now. So kind of oriented towards quantity, but um, also, and you've probably experienced this as well. People are like, well, why do you need a production machine for prototyping? And I'm always like, well, it's not like a production machine does prototyping bad unless it's, you know, like maybe a pallet changing machine where it's hard to see the work area or something like that. But it's like, you know, one of these machines, a Speedio is going to do a better job than a tool room mill as long as you can get the part inside the enclosure. Um, right. For the most yeah. part. Um, and I always find even if you're doing 10 parts, it's great to like run it slow once and then turn it up to full speed and go home an hour earlier. Like no one's going to argue with that. Right. Oh yeah. Well, and that the argument I also give is like, well, if my machine can run production for five years straight or three years straight in China in a sweatshop, how long is it going to last me, you know, doing onesie twosie and taking care of it, you know, in a, in a nice, nicer shop. Like, yeah. It just shows yeah. the longevity of these machines. So I'm, I, Yes, I can turn it up and I can run a bunch of parts if I want to, but it also holds tolerance really well. And, you know, yeah. it's not, uh, it's, 
for the price, it's a very good machine. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And they seem to take abuse even when you do stupid stuff. <laughs> I've learned from experience. <laughs> cool. On that, on, a, on that production job, I made a couple mistakes and crashed some tools and thought I'd ruined my whole year, but it ended up being okay. It just makes a little more noise now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and worst case, like they can come out and just swap your, your spindle, which it's not cheap, but it's definitely cheaper than a new machine. So, you know, yeah. Are you, honestly, I watched the guy do it when he brought this machine in because it has the dual contact and they ship with the standard. Um, so they swapped the spindle here when they delivered it. Uh, I was like, that's pretty easy. And then when I crashed the spindle, I swapped the uh, coupler and had to rebalance it myself. And, you know, the only thing involved in actually swapping the spindle is a few more bolts. Um, you could do it yourself in a couple hours pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our TC actually came with a spare spindle um, when nice. we bought it used. And so I've always kept that as my like insurance policy on that machine for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then his last question was for me. I, I owe the podcast, I guess, an update on my car. I, I can't remember if I've talked about it on here, but he was asking if I was still moving forward with the speed we know. And he was curious because he runs a DIY plug and play mega squirt on his Miata. And I can't I can't remember if I talked about it on here. But anyway, I decided to go K swap instead of my 3S GTE, which means I'm no longer using my speed we know and going down that rabbit hole of building my own board and all that, which was a fun exercise and grew my skills a little bit, but now I'm just going with a Honda ECU mod, which is cheaper than a full standalone ECU and, you know, easier it's plug and play on the, the Honda wiring harness and all that stuff. So it's a lot easier. So that's the, the short update on the car. Um, cars, cars, cars. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, that's what I think about when I'm not thinking about machining. So, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Hackett Industries said that he just found out about you from the podcast, which is great. And then he had a question on how you, how it's been learning about marketing and becoming known in the bike industry. And he knows that, you know, frame building tools are more of a niche market, um, but that he wanted to kind of know how, how it is to get started in the, the industry like that. Yeah. Uh, it's been slow. My whole business has grown obviously from my description kind of organically and circuitously and it's been very word of mouth um entrance into the bike industry has been basically instagram and people i've met face to face in the industry or you know uh introduced by a mutual friend um and it's been not a i think this was another question there somewhere like whether it pays the bills or not. Um, yeah. Oh, that was Wesley Carr's question. Yeah. It was about, does it, you know, yeah. like part, the majority of your work and does it pay the bills? Yeah. Uh, I, a year ago, I would have said no, not at all. Um, it was, it was like an interest. Um, so you had Joe on a couple of weeks ago, who's building frame tools now. And um, he was very well positioned when there was a big shift in the frame building industry and that one of the the main suppliers of tools uh, retired and shut his shop down and created this big opening. Um, And actually, you know, when that first happened, I was like, I should do that. And then I was like, 
I had too much on my plate. Um, Joe was very smart and already had his foot in the door and went for it. And I definitely applaud him for that. Um, and I'm starting to push more in that direction with the tools and definitely with the parts. Um, and it's been a slow build. I've been doing a lot of partnering with um, a company called Bike Fab Supply. And that has been really helpful because he, he places big enough orders to make it worth my while to start developing these products. Um, Cause doing it totally on spec can be pretty terrifying. You put so much time into the product development and then you don't know if they're going to sell at the end of the day. Um, so that's been really helpful. I actually just was doing my like end of year bookkeeping today and saw that question. And so I went and did a little quick calculation and my bicycle related stuff was basically a fifth of my income for the last year or gross income for the shop for the last year. And um, I would say most of that was in the last half of the year. So it, it's, it feels like it's gaining momentum. Um, and it's hard to know like what, what things make that happen. Um, one, there was one little project I did where I made a, a set of custom cranks for a guy and I was kind of like, I actually, the reason I made them is because I'd made him a version uh, a year prior and one of them broke. Um, so I was making him a new set basically on spec just because I was, I was like, ah, oh, that sucks. I should make that better. <laughs> um, so made a, a, a revamped version. And then right after that, all of a sudden there was like a flood of emails about bicycle related projects. And it's like, so you never kind of know what's going to tip stuff over the, um, over the balancing point. Um, and especially with social media, it seems like there's a lot of people who are kind of like watching, but you don't know that. And then something, uh, you know, catches their interest enough to get them to reach out. Um, and it seems like there's potential for that to kind of build upon itself. Um, which I was thinking about today is like this in, um, and the business side of stuff, like the thing I'm really coming up against recently is, uh, quoting and how much of a time investment and like how much kind of like emotional investment it takes and how complicated it is to, to do it well and, but quickly and all these things. Um, and all of the little pieces that are involved and um, and the fact that like, we really want to boil things down to uh, like, you know, we were always like time materials, like machine runtime, like takes this many minutes at this rate, like this is what the part's going to cost. And there's so much more to it that. And one thing I've been thinking about recently is like how much that we often think of the customer as just bringing money to the equation. And like, that's kind of like what they input but like they actually bring a lot more to the equation than that. And part of that is, you know, whether they are a member of your community and are going to vouch for you, um, whether the product they want you to make will, you know, kind of add to your portfolio in a good way, all these different things. And that crank set was kind of an interesting example because like I basically, I didn't make any money on that, but, it had a, a big effect on the business. 
and working with people locally i'm like sometimes people bring me these little projects and i'm like you know that is really not worth my time but the fact that you know about me and maybe when you do have something that's worth my time that's bigger you will come to me first is worth it in the long run um that's kind of a circuitous way of saying that uh I don't really know how to enter into the bike industry. I don't think it's like flooded. I think there's not a lot of people that have bothered to enter the market, but the prices are a little bit low. So it's a challenging market to enter. Um, and it requires a lot of tribal knowledge to enter it well. Uh, Cause it's not, like I said, people don't give you good prints. Like you have to know how bikes work and how they're put together in order to design and build parts for them. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, that kind of wraps up. That. Yeah. Oh, I think so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, it sounds like it's just a tough industry to, to get into because it's part. I, I don't want to say like art, but it's like kind of like art and mechanical and, and there's like this deep emotional connection that a lot of people have with their bikes. It seems like, so I, yeah. I think there's a lot of emotion driven purchases too. And so it, all those kinds of industries are kind of hard to break into. Yeah. Emotion, aesthetics, all that kind of stuff. Um, and we're in a tough economy and like bikes seem really expensive, but frame builders are not making good money. Most of them, some of them are, but a lot of them are not. Um, so they're always trying to get the cheapest stuff. So you have to figure out how to provide them with what they want at a, at a price they can afford that still makes a, a viable product down the line to the, to the end customer. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that kind of wraps up the questions. Let's talk about shop things. What's going on recently with you guys new tooling new fixturing what's what's fun uh yeah i got a coffee pot today that was awesome <laughs> i saw that we actually just got one for the first time for the shop like a week or two ago and it is it's so nice to have <laughs> game changer for sure my my mom's a caterer and actually just lives like a block away and has a commercial kitchen in her basement with an espresso machine so i often walk down and get espresso but it does take about 20 minutes and you know, sometimes I can't do that. So it's good to have a coffee machine. Um, let's see what else is new in here. Um, so John has been using an old laptop that doesn't run CAD software super well. So I've got a new laptop that matches mine coming in. Um, and going to give him one of my screens, my, my extra screen. And I, so I ordered two new screens for me and a stand. So I'll have like a, a three screen setup because um, I'm overgrowing two. Um, what else we got in here? Been trying to get like the tool stations at the machines a little better set up. So I got torque wrenches and dedicated Allen wrench sets for each of the mills. Um, so that's kind of the stuff that's come in. Nothing super exciting. Uh, and then today I was doing a lot of research on collet chucks for the lathe trying to find a not too expensive option because this machine was inexpensive and i don't know how long it's going to last um but right now we've got a 5c call it chuck and then a three jaw and we end up swapping back and forth between them a lot um so i'm trying to find a 
a larger format collet chuck that we can get for the machine without too much cost difficulty. Um, I've got like a, what is it called? Like a hardened super collet system chuck where it has like one collet that you put different pads in, but it's the wrong spindle face. So I might just have to make an adapter. Oh, geez. Yeah, we'll see. Or I may just buck up and buy something. But we paid $3,000 for this machine. It's hard to spend $3,000 on a chuck for it. <laughs> Even though it <laughs> might make sense in the long run. Yeah, no, I I, I know the feeling. Like when, whenever we had to spend money on the kitty, it was like, this machine was fairly cheap. Like, do we really want to put that much more into it? And, yeah. But, you know, I, I guess hard. that's the, the downside of how, getting a deal is you're like, you got to sometimes spend more than your deal to keep it running. Yeah. And it's like, we don't need it. It's just, would be nice to cut down on setup times for that machine. Cause it can be a little finicky anyway. Um, so, and I, I'm just worried that we're going to put a bunch into it and then it's just going to die and we're going to have to buy something new that the chuck won't fit on. So anyway, that's what I was looking at today for the most part. Cool. Yeah, sounds like things are going well then. Business partner, all that stuff. Yeah, it's exciting. Now we just got to make more money. (laughs) Always, always. Yeah. Well, I I guess you kind of already answered this, but you know, I always ask everybody, "What did you research this week?" So, is there anything you researched that isn't a call check or you know, machining related? Yeah, uh, well, sort of machining related. I've been looking at um, Pro Shop a lot this last week and scheduled a. uh, a little demo for the end of this week. Um, been talking the last week with a acquaintance who runs a shop in Seattle, who's kind of similar story to myself, like self-taught kind of just started organically from the ground up, but he's, I don't know, three to five years ahead of me. He's got several employees and nicer machines and all that. Um, and he just started using it this last year. And it seems like, everything I hear is like, you should have started using it before you needed it. Cause when you need it, it's a pain in the butt to implement. Um, and just having John here, some realizing like how much is in my head and how much these systems really just rely on me knowing how I do it. And that's not going to work in the long run. Um, so it's, it's maybe a little ahead of what we need, but I'm thinking about, switching over to using ProShop uh, or some ERP system, but they seem pretty dialed um, just because right now this whole business relies on the fact that like I can do three things at once, like keep a machine going, cam program and quote and communicate with customers at the same time. And so in order for us to get more work through, I need to make those things more efficient. And right now, like machine capacity is not our limiting factor. We've got three relatively fast machines. Um, we do not maintain their full you know, spindle uptime. So the limiting factor at this point is me being able to keep material and tooling on hand and get jobs in the door um, and be able to program. So anything that's gonna make that faster, I think is gonna be a real game changer. Uh, so yeah, seriously thinking about trying to implement that. 
Um, so I don't have to put as much of my attention towards it. The quoting thing, especially like I found that to be a real stumbling block, um, to do well. Uh, and when it's gotten really busy, I've started just slapping numbers on things and that's not a good way to go about it in the long run. Yeah. That I've done the same thing. And like you either win big or you lose big, but there's, it's very rare that you're like, Oh man, I quoted that spot on and, you know, slapping a guess on it. Yeah. And being able to track what things actually take compared to what I quoted. I don't have a good system for that right now. And, you know, a lot of that's built in. All the stuff you want is built in. So I'm kind of like, if we're going to start setting up file management and best practices and stuff right now, why don't we just, now that John's coming in, why don't we start on the right foot and just not have to think about it again? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. Um, Pro Shop is definitely on my radar for the future. Yeah, yeah, that. And then I also started talking with a friend who's a business major about getting some business consulting because I think that's I'm a, at this point where it's like we need to grow a considerable amount in the next year, and how to do that responsibly and effectively is I'm a little out of my depth. Um, I feel like I have a really good vision. And a really good goal, but that's substantially different from a plan <laughs> and a strategy. Uh, and so I think getting a little bit of help on what are the intermediate steps between here and there, what are safe steps to take and how to prioritize those. That's it's kind of top of my list. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, I wish I had, more business experience or somebody that I could fall back on for that yeah. kind of stuff. So I, I, I totally understand that. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and I, I, yeah, man. I had no idea like the depth of your story. Like you have done everything under the sun. Um, you really <laughs> are a, a jack of all trades when it comes to that. Yeah. Trying to be less of one, more of a specialist, but, <laughs> um, yeah yeah thanks for having on having me on uh like last week's guest as well i kind of felt like uh a little bit unqualified but also i think hearing people midstream and their story is really valuable for the other folks who are in this process trying to figure out what what how to put the pieces together so glad to be able to share that yeah well and, and i mean i absolutely adore my audience but one thing that i absolutely love about, about the podcast is it's uninterrupted time i can just chat with other business owners so uh, I mean, yeah. don't anybody definitely shouldn't feel like they're out of their depth coming on the podcast because i'm in no way an expert we've had some really great people on here but it's like just an, an excellent time for me to get to chat with some really cool people and i hope that you know everybody who listens gets the same kind of thing that I do, which is just, you know, getting to geek out about machines and, and hear cool stories and, and just have other people to fall back on as far as being business owners or entrepreneurs or whatever you want to call what, you're yeah, doing, I, what we're all doing, you know? Yeah. I kind of think we need to start a new hashtag. That's like machinist business owner stuff or something. I don't know what it would be yet, but you know, that's specific to <laughs> the kind of thing that we're all tackling because it's a uh, it's definitely a niche thing to dork out about is you know 
spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah. Getting a coffee maker, getting yeah. excited about it. <laughs> yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Well, again, cool. thank cool. you so much for taking the time to come on. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back next week. Right on.